Check one, two, check one, two. Check, check. Maybe a little. Okay, how's that? A little, little better? Okay. <laughs> I love Brian Regan. Nice and emotion. Boxing. <laughs> yeah, the whole stupid in school skit is fantastic. Yeah. Brian, what's the plural for, for box? Boxing. Mason and Moose and Boston. Tio Jackson. She can't take it either. She, uh, they were running a little bit behind, so I came ahead of time, so I could talk to you guys. She's heard it all Thank you. 
no, not really. I have, I have, a, I have a feeling that the Eagles are going to win, so I always end up pulling for the team that I think is going to win so that I'm right. So, you know, that's – but I'm not, I don't have a big stake in it. have some confidence that the refs are going to do what they can to keep it close. Gil James. Gil James. That's how the Russians do it. For sure, yeah. Yeah, there are. All right, I need to get in the right headspace here. Distracting me. What are we talking about? All right. Let's go ahead and uh, pray, and then we'll get started real quick. Is this loud enough? Okay. All right. Uh, God, we thank you for your word that you've given us through the scriptures, Lord, and we just pray that you will open our minds to the scriptures to be able to understand them and see how to better defend them and understand uh, the truth behind them, Lord. Uh, God, we thank you for, for all these things, and we, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week, previously, we, uh, well, two weeks ago, we talked about scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of an omniscient, transcendent creator. And then we went into the problem of good and evil, which kind of describes our search for meaning in life, the meaning that we get out of the gospel with regard to understanding suffering and evil that we experience in this world. Um, so all that is is good, but whenever you try to evaluate the gospel, you understand that that comes from scripture, right? So the question then becomes, how do we have a well-grounded faith that we can understand that uh, the truth that we receive through the gospel is is true, that's well-grounded into uh, into reality, good and uh, in, in truth? So another way to answer that question is, maybe double duty here, um, another way to answer, ask that question is to say, how do we know who God is? Um, so if we accept, accept that there is a God, then in order to know anything about his nature or his purpose or his character, it would need to be given through us th through divine revelation. There's only so much that we can accomplish through uh, scientific or philosophical inquiry, right? At some point, God's going to tell us more about his person and his personality, who he is and what he wants from us. So we get that through the Bible. We get that through, through Scripture. So there's, there's three things that, as Christians, that we believe about the Bible. We believe first that it's inspired, meaning that it comes from God, that it's authoritative, meaning that it tells us about what we have to do in the world, how we act in the world, and that it's good for us to be able to follow God's commands, and that it is furthermore inerrant, and specifically inerrant in the original manuscripts. And that's a detail we'll get into more later, but it, all it simply means is that just because you have a printing of something that says the Holy Bible doesn't necessarily mean it was translated properly, 
So there's there's uh, different variations on that, but um, essentially, when it was originally received by the prophets or by those who were inspired in writing, it was inerrant then. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that tribal or stri scribal errors can't be made or anything like that. Okay, so there's a number of objections that that uh, pertain to this particular topic that we'll often hear from non-believers. Uh, the first uh, of these that we'll mention is that uh, they'll say something to the effect that there are multiple translations of the Bible, so how can it be inerrant if there are multiple versions? You've got multiple different versions of the sa saying the same thing or different things, so how can they? How can it be inerrant? And so one way to think about this is this similar to the, the telephone game argument that you'll hear people make of, with regard to Bible translation. They'll claim that the Bible is a translation of a translation of a translation, where in the telephone game, people sit in a circle and they pass a secret message from one person to the next, and you kind of play the game to see, after it goes all the way around, how does the message change? So they try to equate Bible translation to something like this. And that's really not how it's done. So we, we have um, much older Greek manuscripts, so the game would be more like, well, if I could intercept each one of these messages at different stages, I could tell what the original message was. So that's, that's uh, an aspect of textual criticism, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, another objection is that there is limited archaeological evidence for many of the events in the Bible. So there's this expectation that if, it's, if there's not uh, an artifact that's found in the dirt somewhere that supports something that's in the Bible, then that means we can't trust that it's not, that's true, right? So uh, that's a fallacy. Um, some will say something like, the God of the Old Testament is presented as a vengeful and angry God, while the God of the New Testament is full of love and mercy, and therefore these books derive from different conceptions of God, and that's a mis misapplication as well. Um, it's in the Old Testament you have different circumstances, but it's the same God, same God under different, under different circumstances. So the God's wrath in the Old Testament is more prevalent because it's more relevant to the message, but we'll, we'll talk about that in more detail as well. Uh, and, and the last objection I'll mention here is that the Bible contains various contradictions and therefore can't be inerrant. So they'll bring up things like how many women were at the tomb, how many angels were at the tomb. Uh, one says this, and the other says this. So that's a contradiction, so we can't really trust it. And we'll talk about that more as well. Um, so there's a number of main points here. This one's going to be similar to the one two weeks ago where there's a lot of detail, and you don't necessarily have to try to catch all the detail but there are some main points that I do want to make. And so I'll, I'll list them out here, and you can kind of just uh, be listening for them as we go along. Um, uh, the first at, that we'll talk about is with regard to what books are in the Bible. And the main point there is that the Bible consists of the scriptures that Jesus considered to be authoritative, the, the scriptures that Jesus considered to be authentic, plus the books that are received or sent by his authorized representatives, the apostles. So that's the main thing. What did Jesus consider scripture when he was on earth? And what are the books that were written by his authorized representatives? Uh, the second point is that the Bible is the most reliably preserved and abundantly attested collection of ancient books in history. So if you are going to doubt uh, stuff that something is in the Bible, then you're going to pretty much be doubting anything from antiquity. Um, so that's point number two. Three, uh, skeptics will always assume that the Bible is false until proven correct. It's, it's guilty until proven innocent. And so it's a different level standard that's applied to the Bible versus other books from, from antiquity. So, so the Bible should be treated like any other book, uh, charitably in terms of you know, what it says and uh, so forth. So um, fourth point, uh, the absence of evidence does not mean an evidence of absence. So the point about... Um, archaeological evidence. Just because we don't have an artifact in uh, the Sinai Desert for the wandering doesn't necessarily mean that the wandering of the Israelites didn't happen, right? It's a vast desert where people have been walking on it for thousands of years, and uh, there's very little evidence of human existence down there, even though we know it happened, right? So just because you don't find something in archaeology doesn't necessarily mean it didn't happen. We don't, we don't expect to find everything from the last 5,000 years that anybody ever did. So that's an unrealistic expectation. Uh, fifth point, there are no contradicting narratives from other ancient sources. Uh, so the evidence that we do find regarding the Bible in archaeology corroborates the Bible. It affirms what's in there. Uh, and there's not anything that contradicts it. 
Uh, and six is that the Bible must be properly read to be properly understood. So we can't misapply or read the Bible through an improper filter in order to try to understand it. Okay, so those are the main points. Be looking out for those. So we'll uh, go through the, each of these individually. So first again, uh, first topic is how do we know which books should be in the Bible? Um, so the issue here comes up because Protestants have 39 books in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Catholics have <clears throat> another set. They have 46. Eastern Orthodox has another set. And Ethiopian Christians even have yet more books in the Old Testament. <clears throat> so a few ways to approach this. The first I'll mention is that the Hebrew Bible is known as the Tanakh. And it is, what's, it is the authoritative canon of Jewish scripture written in Hebrew. Uh, another one is what's known as the Septuagint. Uh, the Septuagint basically, if you want to know what that means, it's a, it's a translation that means the translation of the 70. So the story goes that there were 72 um, Hebrew elders who were asked to translate their scriptures from Hebrew into Greek. Uh, and so the Septuagint is significant because it contains the Hebrew Bible, the, Tan the Tanakh, plus other, and other, other sets of Jewish writings uh, that were around at the time. The, this translation occurred in about the 3rd century B.C., so two, 300s to 200s B.C. Um, and it's also significant because it's the, most, it's, it's the translation when, when New Testament authors are citing the Old Testament, they're typically citing from the Septuagint because that was the Greek Testament that was Greek Old Testament that was around at the time, and it's the uh, source for the Roman Catholic Old Testament. So when the Roman Catholics translate their Bible, they typically translate from the Septuagint, um, whereas Protestants te uh, translate from the Masoretic text, which is a little bit different. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, so then you've got, as I mentioned, the Roman Catholic Old Testament. Um, that was somewhat established in the Council of Rome in 382 AD, although that's it gets to be a complicated story. I'll, I'll do a plug for a book if you want to know more about how the Bible came to be. Um, there's a book called Scribes and Scriptures, a really good uh, walk through from the beginning all the way up to today, how we get to, how do we got, get our Bible today. So it's it's a complicated story, but uh, I think it's worth a, worth, worth a read. But uh, the point I'm going to make here about the Old Catholic Old Testament is it consists of 46 Old Testament books as opposed to 39. So there's seven additional books that we know as, we, we refer to as the Apocrypha, and Catholics will refer to it as deuterocanonical books. Um, and then, of course, there's the, Pro, uh, the Protestant Old Testament, which was established during the Reformation, where those deuterocanonical books, the Apocrypha, were removed from, from the canon, essentially. And furthermore, as I mentioned, that they are generally translated from the Masoretic text as opposed to the Septuagint. So the Masoretic text is the authoritative Hebrew and Aramaic Aramaic translation of the Tanakh. So the picture I have on the right is um, hopefully not too confusing, but all it's really meant to show is this: is that the Catholic Old Testament is a subset of the Septuagint. So even though they've got the seven extra books, they don't have all the books in the Septuagint. There are other books that are not included uh, within the bound version of the Catholic Old Testament. And then the Hebrew Bible and uh, the Protestant Old Testament are subsets of that. So. We have the, the core 39 books. There's an additional seven books in the Catholic Old Testament, and there's an additional set of books outside of that that were uh, translated as a part of the Septuagint. Um, I would say there's, I, I'd just be guessing, five or six extra outside of that. So they, and it kind of depends on what you're talking about because the Septuagint is not just a monolithic thing either. <clears throat> so some, some have like the third and fourth Maccabees and, I think Psalm 151 is an extra psalm, and some have like an extra part of Daniel. So it's, a, it's not real clean, but yeah. Okay, so we'll jump to the next slide. So as I mentioned, uh, so why, um, so I think the, the, the pertinent question we should have as far as what books we should consider for the Old Testament is what books did Jesus considered to be authoritative scripture. So what was Jesus' Bible? And he gives us a little bit of a clue here in Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 44. This is on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, and he's talking to his disciples. And he explains to them that these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
<clears throat> so the law of Moses, prophets, and psalms is, sort, is shorthand for the Tanakh. Um, the Tanakh is actually a just a uh, acronym, T-N-K, and it stands for Torah, which is the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, uh, the Navim, which is the prophets, and it is a mixture of what we would consider history books and the prophetic, most of the main prophetic books. And the Ketuvim, the K, are known as the writings, and often shorthand just because the Psalms is the, is the largest part of this group. And it includes most of what we would consider the wisdom literature, plus some Psalms, plus some historical books. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but what Jesus is referring to here is uh, the, the, talk, the Tanakh, the T and K. Uh, and then it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So he's referring to the, to the law, the prophets, and the Psalms as being the scriptures. All right, so let's go to the next slide. So kind of answered this a little bit in terms of, so why remove the Apocrypha? Why remove the Deuterocanonical books? Um, and the main reason is that they were not and still not canonical according to biblical or according to rabbinical Judaism. Um, so canon is a word that means straight staff or measuring rod. So if you're trying to understand um, some text in the context of whether or not it's biblical or sound, part of sound doctrine, you have to compare it to something else. And so that thing that you are comparing to is the canon. So um, um, non-canonical basically means non-inspired and not, not authoritative. Um, and so this is reflected in what's known as the Babylonian Talmud in terms of how rabbinical Judaism views these other books. Uh, and, and, and there it says, after the latter prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi had died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. And the point is that these, these um, apocryphal books were all written after Malachi. These are typically in this intermediate period, like First and Second Maccabees is, is written during the Maccabean period and, and so forth. Um, so as far as we know, as far as we can tell, the Jews never considered those books part of their authoritative canon, even though they were Jewish writings at the time. And even the, the, the word deuterocanonical refers to them having a secondary importance relative to the other main books of the Old Testament. And so often the way uh, uh, some of the uh, first, uh, maybe that's like second century and third century Christians, the early Christians that were writing about these books and deciding the canon, um, they would often write about these books as being edifying. You know, they kind of have a, a secondary uh, purpose as being educational, but not necessarily authoritative. And so that you'll see that kind of pop up quite a bit in those, in those discussions. Um, Another reason not to include them is that if you consider the New Testament uh, from written by the apostles and, and close associates of the apostles, the New Testament cites the Old Testament as having divine authority over 295 times in the text. But those books that we're referring to of the Apocrypha are never cited in the, Old Test in the New Testament as having divine authority. So if, if you ever see anywhere in the New Testament where it says you have heard it written or according to the scriptures, it's always a reference back to something in the original 39 books and you won't see anything from some of these other books. And I've got a quote here, probably don't necessarily need to read the whole thing, but um, um, this is from Melito, Bishop of Sardis, uh, obviously an early Christian reading, writing this around 8170, and he's affirming uh, basically the, the, the 39 books of, of the Old Testament. Uh, there were others that had different lists of books, but um, uh, this is a pretty, he was a pretty good, good source for, for this and, and describes it pretty well. Um, uh, maybe one note here, if you're curious about, I threw out the, the Talmud, what, you know, what is the Talmud? Um, so we talked about the Torah as being the Law of Moses, the Tanakh as being the, the Hebrew Bible, and then the Talmud is kind of like an ex, uh, an explanation of the Tanakh. It's, a, it's sort of like case law, and like the Constitution is the law of the land of the United States, and then you might have Supreme Court cases that expound on that, and then other cases will, will reference back to it for an, a greater understanding. Or you can think about it like a commentary. We might have the Gospel of John, then you might have a commentary in the Gospel of John where it's a bit lengthier and, and kind of describes it more. It's not authoritative in the same way, but it's a, a description. So that's, that's kind of where that comes from. All right, so we'll go to the next slide. <clears throat> uh, 
So as far as the New Testament goes, um, there is a very little difference among Christians. So we talked about all the different versions between Protestants and Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. Well, as far as I'm aware, um, all Christians have the same 27 books of the New Testament. Uh, so uh, those books were affirmed at what was known as the Synod of Hippo in 8393. And again, I would recommend reading uh, Scribes and Scriptures if you get a little more, want a little more detail, because it's not, it's not as uh, always as clean as it sounds. There's, uh, there was some dis discussion about some different books, but we'll describe here what the criteria was for canonicity. What were the main things that go into this decision about which books to include, which ones to not include? And the primary uh, criteria, I would say, is, is what's known as apostolic origin. It means it's, this book was attributed to and based upon the preaching and teaching of the first generation apostles or their close associates. So one interesting thing here is that what an apostle means is, is somebody who is, excuse me, an authorized representative. So Jesus had 12 disciples, meaning they were followers or learners. He had 12 apostles, meaning authorized representatives. And so in Matthew chapter 10, we get to see, we get to see kind of where this, um, how these things are related, in other words. It says, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. So they were learners, and then once given authority by Christ, they are now apostles. So they have authority, in a, in a sense, to speak on his behalf. So that's why we would trust these documents, because they are what, who Christ has appointed to tell us um, about him. So um, if you want to break down the New Testament into this, based upon this criteria, um, we've got a, some set of books that are from one of the original 12 apostles. We've got uh, the book of Matthew, uh, or the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of John, um, and we've got the letters from, from Peter, First uh, and Second Peter, and the letters from John, First, Second, Third John, and Revelation. So those are the books from the New Testament that come from uh, one of the original 12 apostles. Um, then you've got uh, a category of what would be considered a later apostle, uh, the 13 letters from Paul, who became an apostle during his uh, experience on the road to Damascus with Christ. Um, so he was appointed later after the resurrection uh, but appointed later to be his uh, uh, apostle to, to the Gentiles, essentially, to his, his messenger to the Gentiles. And James, the brother of Jesus, who was not a believer in Christ as the Son of God at the time, even of the crucifixion, but he encountered Christ later and then became a later apostle and a leader of the Jerusalem church. And then we've got the category of someone who is a close associate of an apostle. Uh, so the Gospel of Mark is essentially Peter's gospel. Mark was the scribe and disciple of Peter. So what you're essentially getting is Peter's account written through uh, his scribe, Mark. Um, and then you've also got Luke and Acts. So um, uh, Luke was a follower of Paul, who was one of these, uh, one of these later uh, apostles. And so whenever you read in Paul's letters and he's quoting something from the gospels, he's typically quoting from Luke. So he's giving his apostolic affirmation to Luke's work as being scriptures. <clears throat> and then finally, you've got uh, the book of Jude, who was the brother of Jesus. So a close associate in that sense that he was a brother of Jesus. And then the one that doesn't quite fit in, into these categories very neatly, neatly is the book of Hebrews, mainly because the author is unknown. We believe he's a close associate of Paul, or some people believe Paul himself, but the author is essentially unknown. Um, but there are other categories for how we, how we make this decision. So next slide. Uh, as I mentioned, there were four. So apostolic origin, but also universal acceptance, meaning that they were, these books are acknowledged by all major Christian communities in the ancient world <coughs> by the end of the fourth century. So this means they were widely read and widely accepted um, and were used for liturgical use, meaning they were read publicly when early Christian communities gathered for the Lord's Supper, or they consist of a consistent message. So books that didn't have a consistent message with the other ones that were um, clearly from an apostle like, like Matthew or, or John or something like that, if they were inconsistent, then they obviously wouldn't be included. So containing a, a theological outlook that is similar or complementary to other accepted Christian writings was important as well. <clears throat> 
So again, uh, main points here: not a whole lot of dispute among uh, uh, among Christians on the on the New Testament books. Although there 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 you will find some in in the liter in the literature, but ultimately we all ended up with the same set of books. Um, so just kind of a quick overview of this is that what we have in terms of what is the Bible is that we have what Jesus considered to be the authoritative scriptures from the Old Testament plus the universally accepted uh, messages from his authorized representatives, the apostles. So that's what we're talking about when we say it, when we're referring to the Bible. Okay, next slide. Okay, so once we decide that we've got the right set of books to defend, uh, we can then say, well, how do we know that the Bible has been reliably preserved? We've got the right books, but how do we know that the message that we had today when we open up the Bible represents what was written down 2,000, 3,000 years ago? Um, so one of the first things we can say to that is that uh, with regard to the New Testament, <clears throat> we'll start with the New Testament, is that it is by far the most well-preserved collection of documents from antiquity. Uh, so if you're going to doubt the contents of the New Testament, you can pretty much doubt the contents of any historical book uh, from uh, this type of time frame. Uh, so in terms of numbers, let's see how well, yeah, I think those are, those charts are pretty readable now. Okay, so um, you can see that we've got over 5,500, or it depends on how you count, but um, some sources will list 5,800 uh, copies of original Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, and you can compare that to Homer's Iliad, where there's about 1,900, Caesar's account of the Gaelic Wars, 250, the history of Livy, um, 150, uh, Tacitus, 33, and Thucydides at 96. So many more copies of the, <coughs> of the or manuscripts of the, of the Greek New Testament floating around. And then you, add, you can add to that the additional 18,000 non-Greek New Testaments, like Coptic uh, in Coptic language or, or Syriac or other, other languages that are also fairly ancient that document the same thing. So there's a large volume of work that goes into um, being able to tell um, what was the original copies of, of these books. <coughs> so essentially the, the point here is that with regard to large numbers of manuscripts means you have large numbers of variants. So there are differences between these books, but it means the large, you've got a large volume of sources into which to detect or correct errors. So like if you only had one copy of the Iliad, you could say, well, that's the golden copy, but how would you know? Because there, there would be errors, but you'd have nothing to compare it against, right? If you've got 5,800 uh, copies of it, then you've got a different problem. You will have differences, but then you've got to figure out, well, which differences are the, are the, are the right ones and which ones are the wrong ones? And so the way this is, you know, a simple way to kind of describe how this is done would be like if you had a co 100 copies of a document and 99 of them for verse A said one thing and one said something different, then you can pretty much look at and tell, okay, this is the original, the one that's most prevalent versus the one that is least prevalent. So that's one way to look at it, it but that's a, it gets pretty complicated because this, this, there's a whole um, field called textual criticism that gets into how, how do we do this? How do we determine what the true uh, original Greek was? But another thing that uh, the New Testament has in its favor is that uh, the text were very recent in terms of the manuscripts to when they were originally written. So the oldest copy we have of something from the New Testament goes back to merely 40 years after the original do uh, copy. So this was a fragment from uh, the Gospel of John um, that was written about 40 years after when people believed that the Gospel of John was actually written. So that's fairly recent. So in none of these cases do you have like the original copy of you know like what John wrote down or what Homer wrote down. Uh, you've got a copy. Um, but these copies are much more recent, so you can compare the 40 years for that fragment, in any case, to the earliest copy of Homer, which is like 400 years after he was, uh, after he lived, and 900 years for Caesar's copy, and so forth. Um, so again, this is not saying that we have an entire copy of the New Testament that was written 40 years after the original copies. Um, so it generally goes that as you get closer and closer to today, you've got larger and larger complete copies of complete sets. But you've got a lar both a large volume and a volume of, of documents that go back much earlier. Um, <clears throat> uh, after the, so we believe that John probably wrote his gospel in, 
you know, the 90s AD. And then this fragment, they believe, would go back to about the 130s AD. So it was 40 years after it was documented. Yeah. Um, so you can go further on in history, maybe another 100 or 200 years, and you can find your first complete copy of the Gospel of John, and you can compare the, the verses in that fragment, which were newer, to the verses in the complete copy of the Gospel of John. And then you can go even further out where you'll find an incomplete complete copy of the New Testament, and you can compare that version of John to the version of John that's in the complete copy of the New Testament, and so forth. So that's kind of how that, how that process works. Uh, the bottom line is that um, it's basically stated that approximately 7% of the New Testament text is in, is in question. So 93% of the text where we have high confidence in, we know what, what the original said. There's only about 7% of the, of the text that would be in question, and typically in any good stu study Bible, as you come across the, those verses, they will highlight it and mention it um, and things of that nature. But the most important thing here is that I, even among that 7%, most of those variants have little impact on the meaning and no doctrinal issues are at stake. So if we go back to the first class when we talked about central beliefs versus confessional versus charitable beliefs, nothing in that central category is really touched by these variants. So that's, that's the most important thing. All right, let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> All right, so we've got a similar story here for the Old Testament, although the Old Testament is a bit more complicated. Of course, the Old Testament goes back much further in terms of its dating. You've got many more authors, and you've got more, more books here. Um, so first of all, the, uh, when you're talking about the very old books of the Old Testament, like the Pentateuch and others, um, oral tradition was the primary mode of transmission up to about the 800 BC. So 800 BC, that gets you to about the reign of Hezekiah-ish, I think, or maybe maybe a little bit later. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, this is a little bit earlier. But anyway, um, <coughs> so there wasn't there was a period of time where there wasn't much, if any, written Hebrew text. So it was it was translated transferred through oral tradition. But oral tradition was considered reliable, authoritative, and sacred uh, because these people are basically transferring knowledge of their people's history, right? So it was, it was a sacred thing to do and um, <clears throat> something that was very serious, taken very seriously. Um, so someone might be able to say, you know, well, how would we know that these are actually, you know, the, this was actually with maintained properly, right? I mean, how, how will we know that oral tradition worked well? Well, one of the things you can do is you can look at uh, the linguistics of the text itself and determine that even though we might have the earliest copy might be from like the 300s BC, you can tell that this comes from a much older tradition that aligns better with this original period that it intends to describe. So uh, similarly, we could think about like if you were to co pick up a, a copy of the King James Bible that was printed yesterday, you can read the text and be able to tell that somebody today didn't write this. You read a, a copy of Shakespeare that somebody wrote today, you could tell, you know, nobody talks like that anymore, right? So. Um, Similarly, you can look at uh, Genesis and Exodus and be able to tell that the way the language is used, the way the, name, the names, the people, the way the people are described, this was done in a way that is not contemporary with the oldest documents. So we know this comes from an older tradition that aligns better with the dates that they originally had. Um, and then we've got the Hebrew man manuscripts. I talked about the Masoretic text previously. Uh, these oldest versions of the Masoretic text that we have go back to about only uh, 800 AD. Um, the Masoretes were, were Jewish scholars dedicated to preserving their biblical texts, and they were pre preserved in various biblical codices and contains all the old books of the Old Testament. Uh, the oldest copy goes back to about a thousand years, so about a thousand AD of the oldest complete full copy of the Masoretic text. So that may not sound impressive, uh, you know, considering um, you know, that 1,000 years is a long time, but, you know, we're talking about books that go back 3,000 years, let's say. So you've got 2,000 years to account for. So that might have been a good argument, let's say, uh, up until 1946, until in the Judean desert near Qumran, they found uh, 1,100 scrolls of the Hebrew Old Testament in what is known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. It contains all the books of the Old Testament except for Esther. And what they found is that whenever they looked at these books, and we brought the timeline back into the 1,000 years plus, some of them, the oldest manuscripts date back to 250 B.C., that the text matches up 
almost identically or very, very, very close in terms of meeting. There's actually a website you can go to and you can pull up any book of the Old Testament and compare it to what the Dead Sea Scrolls says and what the Masoretic text says. And it's very, very close. So you can tell that this, uh, the, the scribes that were used by the Masoretes have been very good over time because they've maintained it for that thousand years uh, in between uh, in a very uh, good manner. Um, in terms of the oldest text that we have from, um, from the Old Testament, uh, that is found in what's known as the Silver Amulets or the Katif Hinnom Scrolls. Uh, and what you have is a few verses of what's known as uh, what, uh, the, the priestly blessing from Numbers 622 through, uh, through 27. So there's a full copy of that. And it's basically in this rolled up silver that was in, in an amulet, I guess, that describes, that includes this verse. And this goes back to 600s BC. Um, Additionally, we've got the Septuagint. As I mentioned before, this is not original Hebrew, but it's the it's Greek translation of the Hebrew. And it's similarly to the Dead Sea Scrolls, goes back to the 200s BC uh, time frame uh, and was preserved in various papyri, unicals, and medieval minuscules. So it's not just kind of one monolithic group, but it was kind of preserved over a variety of different uh, methods. And so bottom line again, uh, similar to the New Testament, the original reading of the text has been preserved uh, through textual criticism, and the experts on this believe that there's only about 10% uh, of the text that's in question, and again, no doctrinal issues at stake, and the vast majority of the difference between these texts are, are just cosmetic or, or cultural in nature. And another way to think about this is that there's really no evidence suggests that the Old Testament has not been reliably preserved. So there haven't been found any copies where they're giving a contrary narrative to the one that we have that was written. There's not like some other copy that's been found or other tradition where you know the, the Pharaoh just lets the people go out of Egypt out of his own heart, you know, the goodness of his own heart, or they have a different origin story or something like that. The only evidence we have is is the is the evidence that exists in the in the Bible. So all right. Next slide. All right, so here we'll get to a bit of um, external evidence, although a lot of this is, is internal as well. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about archaeology in terms of some of the different uh, stages of the Old Testament um, uh, events. So an objection to the Exodus is, you know, kind of a, kind of a lack of, of, of archaeological evidence. Um, so one, one way to answer this is, is to say that the Bible is not one source, but many. So there's 66 different books with many different authors in, in the Bible, right? But the Exodus account is presented as historical and not mythological by both the authors of the Exodus. So it doesn't read like it's a mythological account. It reads like history. And everybody who cites the Exodus after that um, refers to it like a historical book. They, they refer to the people with genealogies, real places, uh, real place names. So nobody seems to be suggesting that the Exodus is anything but a historical event. Um, Another piece of evidence that's interesting that is uh, internal evidence to the, to, the, to the Exodus account is the presence of what are known as uh, loan words from Egypt. Uh, in Exodus and Numbers, um, there are up to 27 Egyptian loan words that are used in the text uh, versus a total of 51 in the entire rest of the Old Testament um, corpus. And so um, you get this high prevalence of Egyptian loan words. A loan word is something that is like, um, in English, you've got like the word rendezvous or restaurant. These are French words that have been incorporated into English after William the Conqueror came to, came to England and brought, you know, kind of a, an infusion of the French language. And so what you have in the Exodus account is the story where the, the Israelites are living in the land of Goshen in Egypt, and they've been there for many years, so they're going to be incorporating a lot of Egyptian uh, names and customs and uh, and words into their language, and that's exactly what we find when we read the the, the Exodus account critically. You find uh, loan words that are disproportionately Egyptian loan words during this account, indicating that they have a close historical circumstance to the Egyptians. A lot of the names of, of people that um, show up in the accounts are names that have a strong affinity to Egyptian names of that time and as well as places and customs and crop cycles and all these sorts of things. So one way you can think about it is that if the Exodus was a later forgery done by people trying to create a narrative, they were done by really good historians. They really knew 
13th century uh, Egypt really well. So, um, or you could just say that this is an authentic account, right? So, you know, you can pick. Um, another argument is that it's unlikely the Egyptians would record this type of event. So to expect that you would find this in like some Egyptian inscription is fairly unlikely. They did record, you know, uh, losses and things occasionally, but it wasn't like the rule. Most likely they're going to present something as either being a victory or they're going to twist a loss into a defeat or something like that. And furthermore, it's been estimated that only about 1% of ancient Egypt has actually been excavated anyway. So the probability that you're going to find something like this in the, in the archaeological record is unlikely to begin with. Uh, we also do have, though, uh, a lot of archaeological evidence attesting to the existence of Asiatic pastoralist peoples in Egypt during this time. During this time of when, when Israel was there, there's a lot of different evidence that suggests that there were people from the Canaan area uh, that uh, fit the culture of, of the Israelites that were there at the time. And furthermore, the Exodus as a fabrication is unlikely because just it's a recollection, recollection of kind of a, a shameful servitude and, and an unworthy salvation where they're, you know, they can't do anything right and the only person who kind of looks good in this whole narrative is God, not, not them. It's hard to see how this serves them um, as, a, as a fabricated narrative. All right, so next slide. So then we kind of look to the pre-monarchy period, the conquest period, uh, after the Israelites have left Egypt. Uh, there's a lot of archaeological evidence here that supports the, the conquest. Um, specifically, there's archaeological evidence supporting the destruction of Jericho around, uh, um, some will say 1400. There's also good evidence for the early date Exodus as well, um, for around 1200s for the destruction of Jericho. Um, that matches the way it's described in, in the biblical text. Also, archaeological evidence supporting uh, the location of Ai, and probably the most the strongest evidence in terms of uh, a specific site is Hazor. Hazor destruction fits very well with the description in the Bible of it having been burned by fire, and that's exactly what they find. During the period of time when the Israelites should have been there, Hazor was burned by fire. Uh, you've also got uh, a Greek historian named Procopius in the 500s AD where he reports to see uh, two Phoenician columns inscribed with uh, a saying that says, we are they who fled before the face of Joshua, the robber, the son of Nun. Unfortunately, we don't have these columns today, but you've got a document from the 500s AD where a non-biased Greek historian is writing that saying that he saw these things. And perhaps most famously, you've got uh, what's known as the Merneptah Stele. So Merneptah, I believe, was the son of Ramesses, and he uh, has what's known as a Stele, this uh, uh, stone document erected by, erected by him that documents his victories over foes in Canaan, and it includes the earliest mention of the word Israel anywhere in archaeology. And importantly here, it places Israel in Canaan at the earliest point that Israel could have been in Canaan, right? So it, it places Israel there when they should have been there uh, in an un unbiased source. So uh, next slide. All right, more external evidence now for the United Monarchy. So this is the period of Saul, uh, David, and Solomon. Um, one thing to point out here is you also wouldn't expect a large wealth of archaeological evidence here, particularly for the period of time of Saul and David. In the period of Saul, um, Israel is just forming after the period of the judges. So as opposed as you know kind of becoming a united group, it's very early. Plus you had a period this is a period of civil war between David's house and Saul's house, plus war with the Philistines and so forth. You don't only get to kind of a stable period until you get to the 40 years of Solomon's reign. Uh, but in any case, you still find numerous archaeological finds that provide circumstantial evidence for the United Monarchy, including uh, the possible discovery of David's palace, where they find a large stone step structure or a large stone structure found just south of the Temple Mount, dating to about 1000 BC. That this corresponds to the, the time of uh, David's reign, and contains another integral large stone step structure dating to uh, about the same time period. Uh, for the period of time that would correspond to Solomon's reign, you've got things like increased uh, commerce, imported pottery, bone fragments of saltwater fish indicating trade with coastal regions, increased mining, and you see the advent of Hebrew, and Hebrew writing coming uh, around. 
So this is signs of advanced culture happening when we would expect to see signs of advanced culture happening during this peaceful Solomonic reign where the culture is kind of uh, congealing around this united monarchy. Uh, also, we have some evidence from uh, 1 Kings chapter 9. Uh, in that section, it is the Bible describes uh, where Solomon conscripted, conscripted labor to build, rebuild, I guess you should say Hazor in any case, the cities of Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. And excavations of these three sites have, have shown that each had the same distinctive gate and wall structure and seemed to have been constructed around the same time. So that again fits with the biblical narrative that Solomon had them built at about the same time. They all have the same, uh, same time when they were built uh, in the archaeological evidence with the same construction techniques that were used. Next slide. All right, so now when you get into the divided monarchy, um, you end up with a lot of, uh, uh, of archaeological and uh, non-biblical sources that corroborate uh, the, the events that are described in uh, First Kings, or the, the Book of Kings, First and Second, and Chronicles. Um, in the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, there are about 19 kings that were listed in, in those books. Six have been verified or referenced in uh, archaeological finds or non-biblical sources, six of those 19. In the northern kingdom, you have even more. You've got eight of the 19 kings that, that reigned there are referenced in non-biblical sources. And a lot of this you can account for the fact that a lot of these kings did not rule for very long. Some of these guys you know, were around for just a few days or a few months, so you wouldn't necessarily expect to find something for them. Um, so a uh, large, large portion of, of them have, have been uh, verified. Um, probably the most famous artifact from this time is what's known as the Tel Dan Stele. It was found in the ancient city of Dan dating around 800 BC, and it celebrates the victory of King Aram Damascus' army over two Jewish states of the divided kingdom. So this isn't a Jewish artifact, this is an artifact from uh, Aram Damascus. And it's celebrating their victory, and it states that he had killed the king of Israel from the house of David. So it's the first mention of the house of David occurring in an archaeological find. And so if David is a purely mythological figure, this would kind of cut against that because this is only maybe a couple, a hundred or two hundred years uh, after the house of David. So why would you mention this if, if David wasn't, you know, somewhat prominent or well-known or if this person wasn't actually considered to be of the house of David? Um, additionally, uh, you can mention what's known as the Shoshank Relief. Um, it is a... Um, corresponds to what occurs in 1 Kings uh, chapter 14, where it states, in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Israel. So Rehoboam is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, directly after Solomon. And it records this attack uh, by the pharaoh uh, Shishak. So the Bible refers to him as Shishak. In Egyptian um, documents, he's Shoshank. Um, but they believe this, this is, they're talking about the same guy. And on this relief, it's documenting, again, his victories over, you know, foes in Canaan. It doesn't specifically list Jerusalem, uh, but first of all, the, the list is, is fragmentary. So it doesn't necessarily, we wouldn't necessarily expect that it had to, have include, had to include Jerusalem because it's fragmentary. But also, the Bible doesn't record that, it, that uh, Shishak actually attacked Jerusalem. What it says is, I'll read the following, it says, then the prophet Shemaiah came to Rehoboam and to the leaders of Judah who had assembled in Jerusalem for fear of Shishak. And he said to them, this is what the Lord says. You have abandoned me, therefore I now abandon you to Shishak. The leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is just. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, this word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. And since they have humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but will soon give them deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak, they will, however, become subject to him so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of the, of the other lands. And when Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem, he, he carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including gold shields Solomon had made. So the, the picture that's being kind of presented here is not that Jerusalem was sacked, um, but that it was being forced to, make, to pay tribute to him. So it wasn't an, an attack, but a kind of a... Um, a, a coerced uh, a plundering, I guess you could say. Um, all right, so let's go to the next slide. All right, so some more internal evidence for the uh, uh, 
reliability of the Bible. Uh, again, it's, it consists of 66 books and 44 different authors over a period of four of approximately 1,500 years, and yet there isn't one place where one biblical author disagrees with another. Uh, so this is just looking at the entire unity of the message and how the Bible comes together to present a single co coherent uh, narrative that would be unlikely because how would you coordinate this over, over, over 1,500 years, over 40 authors and people in different places at different times? Some people might disagree with saying it's, there's no disagreement among the authors, but I, there's a good website that I recommend as a, as a reference called Defending Inerrancy, defendinginerrancy.com, uh, where it's a good reference just like as you're reading through the Bible, especially like the Book of Kings or something like that, where it gets a little bit confusing about who was reigning when, and you might say, this looks fishy, and you can go look up a Bible verse and, and see where, you know, what uh, explanations have been offered for, for some of these apparent contradictions. Um, furthermore, the Bible is, is united in teaching of its own authority. The Bible presents the same picture of God throughout, so it's not like a different conception of God going from, from Genesis on to, uh, to the New Testament. God is kind of the same character throughout the entire Bible. And it includes the same major themes of the gospel that show up throughout. So you get this constant narrative of, of the same set of themes that, that God gives us through the Bible, uh, including God's abundant power and provision through creation, uh, man's fall into sin and God's judgment, man's need for salvation, and God is ultimately glorified. And God's ultimate purpose and his ultimate value is, is to be glorified. And this shows up again and again and again and all across all the different books that show up. So again, just like in the Exodus where God's the only one that looks good, you can kind of apply to that to every book of the Bible where everybody's falling short except, except God's there to be, to be uh, merciful or, or just, depending on, on the context. So, next slide. So that kind of brings us to that objection I mentioned about the Old Testament God kind of being presented as wrathful or vengeful and angry, whereas you know, Jesus is all uh, cute and cuddly and full of love and mercy. And it's really not a, a, a proper picture of, of the way that is, that is presented. Again, uh, Old Testament wrath, even though it comes up over 600 times in the Old Testament, is more prevalent because it's more relevant. It's more relevant to the narrative. It's the same God under different circumstances. Uh, so you've got some examples of, of what you might call Old Testament mercy. Um, in Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Ezekiel 33:11 say to them as I live declares the Lord God I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live turn back turn back from your evil ways for why will you die O house of Israel or Exodus 34:6 where the where it says the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord the Lord a God, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and contrarily you can look in the New Testament and you can surely find God's wrath in the New Testament as well um, in Romans 2.12, it says, For all who have sinned fall, who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Or Matthew 13.41, Jesus says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So one way to think about it is that nobody mentions hell in the entire Bible more than Jesus. So God's, God's wrath and God's, God's justice, his judgment, is still on hand in the New Testament. And let's not forget Revelation. If you're missing any of God's wrath in the, in the New Testament, you can look in Revelation and find an uh, example. Revelation 14 where it says, So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Um, so again, um, it's the same God, same themes of, of, of love, but also judgment um, in, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, so this might be one, if, if you've come across somebody, I would say, who, who has made this objection, because I think this is a pretty popular one. A lot of people who, who don't really know the Bible might, might say something like this. Is this would be an opportunity to, to challenge somebody to really read the Bible or to read some certain parts, parts of the Bible um, and, and kind of ask, you know, is this, are you really sure about this, this conclusion here? Um, because, you know, we can, we can find, you know, different examples where, where this is just, just not true. All right. 
right, so I don't have a whole lot of time for this slide. This was kind of intended as a backup, but this kind of uh, goes back to what I had said in the beginning, that in order to properly understand the Bible, uh, you need to pro read the Bible properly. So these are a list of common mistakes that are made in examining Scripture. Uh, this comes from uh, uh, Josh and Sean McDowell's book called The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. They give a, there's a longer list. These were a few that I was going to mention that I think are pretty pro prominent. And not only do skeptics make these mistakes, but also Christians can make these mistakes too. So they're, they're good um Good, good recommendations, good, uh, good things to keep in mind for any of us who want to, who want to be reading the Bible. Um, so some of these common mistakes are things like assuming that the unexplained is not explainable um, is a mistake that often happens. Um, just because you don't, you don't have an explanation for something doesn't mean it can't be explained. So scientists do this all the time when they have various theories. Um, not all the data fits the most prominent theory, but it doesn't mean just because you've got some single data point that doesn't fit, doesn't mean that you throw out the entire theory that fits all the other data points just because you have this one outlier. It just means you have to investigate more and do more observation. Um, furthermore, presuming that the Bible is guilty until proven innocent, uh, that's pretty typical. Mentioned that before. Uh, confusing our fallible in interpretations with God's infallible re revelation. So we might come across somebody who, or maybe even ourselves, have made a, a fallible interpretation we've made a, an improper in interpretation of the Bible. Um, that doesn't mean that God has failed, it means we, we failed to interpret it properly. Um, failing to understand the context of a passage. Context matters, it always matters. Uh, you can find in Proverbs where it says, there is no God, thus says the fool in his heart. So, you know, context of the text around it, it always matters, you can't take context out of, out of context. Um, Neglecting to interpret difficult passages in the light of clear ones. Some passages are dip more difficult to interpret than the others. But if you have a clear passage where the meaning is, is very clear, you can interpret the difficult ones in, 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 in light of those, as opposed to taking them out of context or trying to create some new doctrine based upon that single passage alone. Um, uh, forgetting that the Bible is a human book with human characteristics. That means literary style, cultural context of the people who wrote it. All that stuff has to be accounted for. Um, assuming a partial report is a, is a false report, like the, the women at the tomb or the number of angels, that's just a single observer's perspective and not necessarily a, an indication that there's a contradictory narrative. It's just showing that it's a partial um, narrative, a partial report. Uh, demanding that the New Testament citations of the Old Testament always be exact. You don't, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Uh, presuming that the Bible approves all that it records, that's probably a big one for a lot of people. That just because the Bible describes something that happened that was bad doesn't mean God is being prescriptive. The Bible is just being descriptive. It's just describing what happened, not saying, I approve of this. So you have to be careful, again, in context to understand what's happening in those texts and understanding who wrote it and for what purpose. Um, forgetting that the Bible uses non-technical everyday language. The Bible is written for everybody, all peoples across all times. Um, so um, if you want to try to apply a scientist filter to the Bible, that's probably an inappropriate uh, filter with which to, to view the text. Um, okay, so we're past 9.45, so I'll, I'll stop there. Um, any, any questions or comments or anything like that? We good? All right. Thank you. I'll buy uh, Josh and Sean's other book. <laughs> oh, did it? Yeah. Okay. I was wondering if I sent it.